0: Physics world. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I chat with the physicist, author, and broadcaster, Jim Al-Khalili, about his guide to life, the universe, and everything. I also learn how muons are being used to improve battery technology— and chat about how a Nobel Prize-winning physicist solved the mystery of why dinosaurs went extinct 66 million years ago. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to learn about the latest breakthroughs in electrochemistry? The 240th ECS meeting brings together the most active researchers in academia, government, and industry, professionals and students, to engage, discuss, and innovate in the areas of electrochemistry and solid-state science and technology. Michael Hecht from the MIT Haystack Observatory delivers the ECS lecture, Electrolysis on Mars, Moxie and the Perseverance Mission, along with award presentations on fuel cells for affordable zero emissions vehicles, pitting corrosion and future directions for batteries as guidance for future innovation. The all virtual event runs from October 10th to October 14th. Attendee registration is free. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash 240 to learn more. The development of quantum mechanics is one of the most important scientific achievements of the 20th century. Yet the theory, which does a fantastic job of describing the microscopic world of atoms, molecules, and subatomic particles, continues to beguile physicists with its counter-intuitive reality of wave-particle duality and quantum entanglement. I'm joined down the line from the University of Surrey by Jim Al-Khalili, a theoretical physicist, author, and broadcaster who is presenting a two-part television documentary called Jim Al-Khalili's Guide to Life, the Universe, and Everything, where he explores the wonders of quantum mechanics and other aspects of modern physics. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Hamish. Pleasure to be here.
0: So, Jim, you've worked for decades as a professional physicist. How would you describe your relationship with quantum mechanics? Do you still look at the theory with a sense of awe and wonder? Very much so. I'm I'm
1: still as excited, baffled, fascinated by it as I was when I first learned about it as an undergraduate student. I mean, I've learned a lot more and I've used it in my working life as, as a mainly as a nuclear physicist, so sort of modeling atomic nuclei, but using the rules of quantum mechanics to, to describe the subatomic world. So I've, I've done that as my day job. And yet, as you mentioned in the introduction, the in- counterintuitiveness of it still fascinates me and baffles me.
0: And, and so what are some of the aspects of quantum mechanics that, that you find most fascinating? What, what are the mysteries as far as you're concerned? It's not the mathematics
1: of quantum mechanics. I mean, that's pretty much Tied down and we 're comfortable with it and and we make predictions and you know we the whole of the modern world we wouldn't be talking on this podcast we wouldn't be using this technology were it not for a, a deep understanding of the quantum rules so it's not the theory itself or the mathematical framework, but it but what really still fascinates me is the the interpretation what does it all mean? Quantum mechanics is the only theory in all of science that has got away with not having a unique interpretation of what the maths is telling us about the world. The, the narrative, the story, the, the, the translation of the symbols into the physical reality that we see around us, uh, it, it isn't there. You know, When you dig deep down, how can a, a, an atom be in two places at once? What is quantum entanglement? So those are questions that we're still struggling with today. And, and in fact, I'm still involved in actively researching into them, things like you know, the measurement problem. What is the connection between entanglement and decoherence? Well, you know, what is the correct way of describing what's going on in the subatomic world?
0: Jim, you've written a lot about the role of quantum mechanics in biology, and that's something that's come as a bit of a surprise to physicists. What, What role does quantum mechanics play in life?
1: Well, it's still an open question. I mean, it's true that it's come as a surprise to physicists, but it shouldn't have. You know, people going all the way back to the founding fathers of quantum mechanics, Niels Bohr, talked about the possibility that uh, you know what's special about life may have something to do with. The, the uniqueness of the quantum world—it's not surprising, in a sense. You know, we're we, all living organisms are made of atoms, so if you dig down deep enough, of course, you're going to hit the quantum realm, and there's quantum uh, uh, mechanics involved. But then, that's the same for inanimate matter as well as living matter. What we talk today about in quantum biology, and and yes, it's an exciting field that I've been involved with in the last decade or two, is where some of the the more Less obvious or the counterintuitive aspects of quantum mechanics seem to p- be playing a role inside living cells in a way that they don't do in inanimate matter of equivalent complexity. This is something that Erwin Schrödinger wrote about in his famous book "What Is Life." So we're studying things like whether protons can can quantum tunnel between nucleotides on two strands of DNA, and whether you know without quantum mechanics you wouldn't get certain types of mutations. So these are questions that have a very important bearing on 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 what is special about life. And yet it's still a tentative, still to some extent controversial subject. Physicists don't like biology because it's too messy and complex. Biologists don't like quantum mechanics because they haven't studied the maths. The chemists who sit in the middle say, What's all the fuss about? You know, of course everything, all biology is chemistry and chemistry relies on quantum mechanics. Why are you inventing a new field? <laughs> so there's there's skepticism, but we're taking small steps slowly to try and understand where inside living systems at the microscopic scale does quantum mechanics seem to be playing a vital role.
0: I think perhaps the most famous example of that is The idea that some birds might use a a quantum sensor to um, to Mm. navigate using Earth's magnetic field. Um, Are are there other similar examples of uh, of how animals might be using quantum mechanics to their advantage? Yes, certainly. This is uh, this
1: is the idea of what's called magnetoreception. You know, built-in compass inside these these birds somewhere in their body that, that helps them navigate. That's the, the the poster child of quantum biology. Could because it's just so so fascinating. We want it to be true, we want it to be correct, but it's not it's still not something that has been established. But the idea is that yeah, inside proteins, inside the bird's retina, uh, you can get two entangled particles, two electrons that are quantum entangled but far apart, sitting on different atoms. That are very, very sensitive to Earth's magnetic field and the orientation of the bird in Earth's magnetic field. And that gives them navigational uh, abilities, a sense of knowing which direction to fly in when they migrate. Other less sexy examples are things like um, uh, quantum superposition playing a role in photosynthesis, or the most important processes in, in biology, how plants and bacteria turn sunlight into chemical energy. And the idea there is that the lump of energy, the photon of sunlight that's captured by chlorophyll, follows multiple routes simultaneously to reach its destination. And that's the only way we can explain the high efficiency of this stage of photosynthesis. There's more controversially the idea that maybe our sense of smell, our, I mean, living organism's sense of smell, may rely to some extent on quantum tunneling. Again, not established, and it may turn out to to be wrong. But some of these questions are so important that you know we do need to pursue them to find out if we rule them out or if indeed quantum mechanics really is playing an important role.
0: And and birds aren't alone in um, having quantum sensors. Um, humans, human physicists that I- that is, uh, are very keen on developing quantum technologies, such as sensors. And over the past decade, there's been a huge intellectual and technical effort to develop these technologies, such as quantum computers. Mm. Has our understanding of the fundamentals of quantum mechanics been improved by by this effort? Or are physicists still scratching their heads about the the basics of of what quantum mechanics means? I think... They are—they
1: are actually separate issues. I and mean, when we talk about quantum technologies today, some people refer to it as quantum 2.0. You know, the 20th century we developed quantum technologies based on our understanding of quantum mechanics. You know, the transistor—we understood about semiconductors and it helped us develop the, the the silicon chip and computers and so on and so forth. All of modern electronics, in fact, relies on on quantum mechanics being correct. What we talk today about quantum technologies, you're right, it's new types of quantum sensors, it's quantum computing, it's quantum cryptography. To, to a large extent, these ideas are based on science that we understand. But what they are doing is forcing us to revisit some of the more obscure areas of quantum mechanics. So in, in order to develop a quantum computer, we need it to, the, the, the interior, the workings of this of, of such a device to behave quantum mechanically in isolation from its surrounding environment, so what we talk about as uh, decoherence. we don 't want these these quantum systems to decohere too quickly before they 've carried out their quantum computation, so that's forcing us to study the nature of entanglement and the nature of decoherence and the nature of the measurement problem. so they do link together. But we are still away from really understanding how the quantum world interacts with its surrounding classical world. And we need that understanding if we're going to develop these technologies.
0: So, Jim, your, your television documentary, um, your guide to life, the universe and everything, uh, it doesn't just focus on quantum mechanics. W- what else do you explore in the program? Well, it's really looking at some of
1: the the, the cutting edge areas of physics that have fascinated me and that have fascinate, fascinate physicists today in the, in the 21st century. So for example, um, Einstein's theories of relativity, how relativity connects with quantum mechanics, uh, the, the, the idea of, of thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics, which leads into some really profound deep philosophical questions like the nature of the, the, the arrow of time, so it's how these ideas, which we have developed for the last century or more, are coming together to give us an understanding of, of of the nature of reality. And while it's my guide to the life of the universe and everything, I can only really talk about the status of where we are now in in, in these fields. It's, it's a journey that we're still traveling on. We still don't have a so-called theory of everything. We still don't know how to bring together the microscopic realm as described by quantum mechanics with the cosmic realm as described by relativity. So it's, it's sort of a state of the nation, sort of where, we're at, where our understanding is at now in some of these exciting
0: areas of physics. Jim, you, you present a program called The Life Scientific on BBC Radio 4, and I, I think it's been running for 10 years now. You, you interview successful scientists about their careers. Have you discovered any common threads of what makes a successful career in science?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting you say that it's the, the 10 years we've been making the program because uh, you know this, this year is our 10th anniversary year. And uh, in fact, I'm currently in the process of scripting a special one-hour program where I talk to past guests about exactly this question. What is it that makes for a scientist? You know, we're not all certainly this, the, 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 the uh, stereotypical middle-aged white man in a lab coat idea of a scientist or someone who's a boffin who's very good at maths is not how science is defined that's not the common uh, uh, thread that holds science together science is so diverse it's so varied and it needs so many different skills that sometimes it's difficult to find what is common among all all scientists i would say it's having a curiosity about the world in 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 a sense you know we're all born scientists as children they are asking the why question it's just that for most people, you know, they stop asking the why question when they grow up and have to deal with the trials and tribulations of daily life. Um, a scientist is someone who's never stopped asking those questions, want, being curious about the world. Um, what we've tried to do in the program is also highlight how science works, what motivates the scientists and how they do what they do. In a way, it's despite the awfulness of the, of the current pandemic the last 18 months have actually shown wider society, science uh, and scientists and how they work in, in, a, in a very sort of, it's the, the spotlight has really been shining on them. How scientists gather data, you come up with a hypothesis, you, you test it, you're willing to admit that you're wrong because you didn't have all the, all the empirical evidence about something. That comes across time and time again. In, in, with my guests on the life scientific, whether they're geologists, psychologists, cosmologists or you, know, any other ology you'd care to think of. But it's yeah, I think it's a passion and a curiosity to understand the world.
0: And when you started out 10 years ago and you you were pitching this to the BBC did they get it? I mean did did you think it was going to be a big success or or w- was there a bit of uh, hesitancy to you know sort of let you chat to another scientist for oh, half an hour uh,
1: Absolutely there was hesitancy. I mean the the uh, the fact is it wasn't my idea. It was the the then incoming head of Radio 4 Gwyneth Williams who uh, whose idea it was. It was her baby. One of the things she wanted to do when she uh, came in was to, to have this uh, uh, half-hour science program that came on after the Today program on Radio 4 at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's seen as the golden slot because so many million people listen to the Today program uh, and, and a large fraction of them don't turn the radio off. And so sort of that 9 to 9.30 slot was was, was great. So, of course, I was asked to present it. I had done TV documentaries. I had done a bit of radio, but I certainly wouldn't have classed myself as an interviewer uh, in, in terms of you know so the broadcasting skills you need. So I was nervous about it. And certainly the science unit within the BBC were nervous that the, the, they had to come up with this flagship prog- science program that their new boss has asked them to do. And there was a lot riding on it. Um, and, you know, incredibly, it was a steep learning curve for me. But incredibly, from very early on, we were getting 2 million listeners a week. And that has carried on consistently over the course of a decade. There were certainly people within the BBC who were skeptical about whether it would work. You know, there was one comment made by someone saying, well, look, you know, once you've interviewed uh, Richard Dawkins and Robert Winston, you know, who else is there? David Attenborough, maybe? And that was the extent of people. And I said, look, if, if I was interviewing historians or musicians or novelists, you wouldn't ask this question because there'll be hundreds, there'd be thousands of people I could talk to. It's the same with science. And I think, I'd like to think that over the last 10 years, we've shown with 250 or so so guests so far, that science is so diverse, that scientists are just people, but they have important, fascinating stories to tell. And in addition, they've changed our world in some way. They've hopefully made our world a better place. So it's an important story that I think wider society needs to hear about.
0: Well, congratulations, Jim. I mean, I've I've been a listener <laughs> for all of those ten years, and I've I've really enjoyed the program. And I'll, I'll be looking forward to uh, to 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 this special episode. When when is the special episode going to be broadcast? It, it well, it depends on
1: when this podcast goes out, but it's on the twelfth of October.
0: Ah, okay. Right, so the, yeah, I'm sure this podcast will be going out before the 12th. So right, so this and... is
1: we're advertising this yeah, <laughs> Tuesday. What what's nice about it, the, the, the Radio Four is designating that 12th of October as the day of science, uh, and so lots of programs like Today Show, Women's Hour, they're going to be focusing on science as well. We've got a one hour special in the morning, and then in the evening, I'm doing another special program where I'm having a a, a conversation with Sir Patrick Vallance, uh, the government chief scientific advisor. He's been a past guest on the program some years ago before he became uh, involved in advising government. So it'd be fascinating to hear his story about how they've dealt with talking to politicians and policymakers in particular in, in, in the light of the pandemic.
0: So it's going to be a full day. Okay, that's great. I look forward to that. And I also look forward to your guide to life, the universe, and everything. And that begins today on Magellan TV and will be free to view until the 4th of October when a subscription will be required. Thanks for being on the podcast, Jim. My pleasure. The UK's ISIS facility in Oxfordshire is best known as a source of neutrons. But it also produces muons, which are used in a wide range of research applications. I'm joined down the line from the ISIS neutron and muon source by Peter Baker to talk about the facility's muon program. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. So l- let's start with the basics, uh, Peter. What are muons, and how are they created at ISIS? Muons are
2: almost like an electron. So they have very similar properties, but they're 200 times heavier, and they have a lifetime of 2.2 microseconds. Cosmic ray muons produced when cosmic rays strike the upper atmosphere pass through each of us about once every second. So they're all around us, but we don't notice. Them. And the way we make the muons at ISIS is actually quite similar to that. We have a particle accelerator, which accelerates protons to about 84% of the speed of light. And those protons then hit targets. Um, some of those targets produce neutrons, but we also have a target to produce muons. That's a thin sheet of graphite, it's about a centimetre thick and a few centimetres across, and when protons strike it, a very small fraction of them produce particles called pions, and those pions almost immediately decay into muons.
0: So in terms of um, you know studying materials and molecules, etc., is it right to think of, of the muon as sort of a, a heavier version of the electron?
2: Yes, so that's, that's quite right. Its magnetic properties are slightly different from the electron um, because it's heavier. They turn out to be quite convenient for being able to look at the sort of magnetic fields that occur inside materials on a, a timescale which is comparable with the lifetime of the muon. So we can do an experiment where the muons go into the sample, experience some magnetic fields, and then decay and give us some information about what those magnetic fields were.
0: And what sort of experiments do you do um, at ISIS? How are muons used to study the properties of materials?
2: If we think about the sort of magnetic fields that occur inside materials, um, in something like a ferromagnet or an antiferromagnet, there might be fields of about one Tesla, so perhaps a third of the size of an MRI scanner, uh, the fields inside an MRI scanner. Um, But if we think about something like a battery material, where the magnetic fields come from the atomic nuclei, like lithium and sodium, there, those fields are more like Tesla, so maybe 10 times bigger than the Earth's magnetic field. And the muons are sensitive to magnetic fields over that range in ways we can easily measure. So we can look at different properties of materials in different ways.
0: And the experiments that you do, are they, are they similar to electron spin resonance or n- nuclear magnetic resonance? Is that, um, are those the main types of experiments that you do?
2: So they are very similar, um, perhaps more similar to the nuclear magnetic resonance experiments. And we can think of the muons going into the samples as being a sort of alien nucleus, which can experience the magnetic fields wherever they stop in the material. Um, But because the muons are produced what we'd call spin polarised, so all their magnetic moments point in the same direction, we don't need to use the large magnetic fields needed for most NMR measurements in order to polarise the alien nuclei. And so we can do without that, and that allows some of the measurements to be a bit simpler. Then you have something which, because it's an alien nucleus in the sample, you can then put it into all sorts of different samples. You don't have to rely on particularly convenient nuclei being there already.
0: So instead of ESR and NMR, you've got muSR. Can you give us some examples of SR measurements that you've done recently at ISIS. I mean, I, I understand that you're very interested in batteries. Yes, that, that's absolutely
2: right. So over the last 10 years, we've started studying battery materials in a lot of detail, um, but looking at just the materials by themselves. And we can find out how fast the ions move through the material and the energy barriers those ions have to pop over in order to travel through the material. In the last couple of years, we've started measuring those materials within battery cells as the cell is operated so charged and discharged and then we can look at how the material changes with the voltage of the cell so one recent example was looking at an all solid state battery and solid state batteries are very difficult to make because often the materials aren't very compatible with each other but in this material it was it's a rechargeable solid state battery if you stay above one volt but if you drop below one volt it stops being easily recharged. And so we were able to do a muon measurement where we discharged the cell with material in, and we could see how fast the ions moved through it. And It was relatively fast as we were above one volt, and then it dropped distinctly below this voltage. So we're able to link what's going on at the microscopic atomic level within the material to what's seen over on the scale of the cell. And we've started to look at that in some other more common battery materials used in electric car batteries more
0: recently. So, so in addition to batteries, what other materials um, do, do you study, or do you and your colleagues study at ISIS?
2: For a long time, been a, a lot of study of magnetic materials and superconducting materials, because a magnetic material obviously has some magnetic fields inside it, which can tell you about how it's organized and, and how the dynamics of that material work. Uh, and superconductors respond to magnetic fields. So if you think about the Meissner effect, in a type 1 superconductor, it keeps all the Magnetic field out almost perfectly. But in a type two superconductor, some of the magnetic field can penetrate through the material, and that gives you a distribution of fields. Muons are really ideally placed to measure in the bulk of the material, and that can tell you about the important length scales and how the electrons pair up into Cooper pairs. So, information people are really keen to find out about. Um, A more recent and and novel um, measurement, um, the results published last year, was looking at. What happens when muons are implanted into materials that contain fluorine? So, you have the fluoride ion, and this is negatively charged. The muons we use are positively charged. So, they're electrostatically attracted to each other. And fluorine nuclei have a nice big nuclear magnetic moment. And you can end up with a quantum coherent state of the muon and some neighboring fluorine nuclei. And then, if you measure that with lots and lots of muons, so instead of our normal measurements, which might be st- 10 or 20 million muons for a data point. If you measure a billion muons going into the sample and then undergoing this, this quantum coherent process, you can look at decoherence and how you lose quantum information from the state.
0: So Peter, what's, what's next for the ISIS uh, muon uh, facility? Are, do, you, do you have any plans for, to, for an upgrade or perhaps um, new instrumentation stations? What, what does the future look like?
2: So, at the moment, we're working on a, a wider project around ISIS to upgrade many of our instruments and come up with new instruments. And one of those will be a muon instrument. It's going to be an upgrade of the instrument I look after called MuSR. And the idea is to make better use of the muons we're already producing so we can use new detector technologies to detect them at a faster rate. Um, But we can also do some things within the beamline to give us access to higher time resolutions. That means being able to measure bigger magnetic fields. So we're going to develop ways of slicing up our pulses of muons so they're much smaller. And therefore, we're less uncertain of when the muons arrive in our samples. And we can rotate the direction the muon's magnetic moment points as it travels down the beamline. And that allows us to measure in larger magnetic fields.
0: And who uses the facility? Is it is it mostly UK based scientists, or or do you have scientists from all over the world doing experiments at ISIS?
2: So the largest number are certainly from the UK, but we, we absolutely do have uh, scientists coming from all over the world. Um, just over thirty years ago, the Japanese research organisation Riken uh, built a muon facility at ISIS um, to serve the needs of the primary Japanese community. And their original interest was in muon-catalyzed fusion, but they also broadened that out into studies of materials. Um, And recently, that facility has been used for studying archaeological samples, because we can use muons to measure what elements are inside a material by using negative muons that release X-rays. And the X-rays' energies tell us which atom captured the negative muon. And so you can look deep in something like a cannonball or coins. So one of my colleagues has been looking at how the Roman Empire gradually debased its currency as it declined and fell.
0: And so, Peter, is there, is there somewhere where um, our listeners can get some more information about um, muon research at ISIS? The, the ISIS website,
2: uh, if you search for ISIS muons, you should be able to find lots of information about the sort of science we do.
0: Well, that's great, Peter. Thanks for coming on the podcast and talking about muon science at ISIS.
2: Thank you,
0: Hamish. On Tuesday, the 5th of October, the winner, or more likely the winners, of the 2021 Nobel Prize for Physics will be announced in Stockholm. In the run-up to the announcement, we are celebrating previous winners of the prize and looking at what they did after collecting their Nobel medals in Sweden. I'm joined down the line by my physics world colleague, Laura Hiscott, who has written a piece for the website about Luis Alvarez, who is much more famous for his connection to a catastrophic event that happened 66 million years ago than he is for his Nobel Prize winning research. Hi, Laura. Hi, Hamish. So, Alvarez was an American who was born in 1911, He bagged his Nobel Prize in 1968. What did he do to win?
3: So Alvarez actually led the development of the hydrogen bubble chamber. In 1952, someone called Donald Glazer had developed the bubble chamber, and he actually won the Nobel Prize in 1960. But Alvarez, during the 1950s, was inspired by this, um, and he developed it into the hydrogen bubble chamber specifically which used liquid hydrogen and, uh, like all bubble chambers, um, is used to record the tracks of particles that are travelling through it, and that can lead to the discovery of new fundamental particles.
0: After he won his Nobel, um, Alvarez became interested in the extinction of dinosaurs. What, what exactly sparked his interest?
3: His son was actually a geologist. In the 1970s, uh, his son Walter... Was working in Italy and he was, um, he was studying the geological strata and this layer of sediment, this layer of clay, which represented the point in time where the dinosaurs had gone extinct. And at that time, no one really knew why. And he told his dad about this and Alvarez just got involved. It seems like. He just got involved in any questions that he came across that he found interesting. Like, for example, he, he even was involved in investigating the assassination of President Kennedy by analysing photos that were published that were taken just before
0: the event. So so he was naturally curious, and in in, in 1980, Alvarez, his son Walter, and two others published a a very controversial paper about this Cretaceous tertiary extinction of the dinosaurs, which happened 66 million years ago. What what exactly did they claim in their paper, and, and how did they back it up? So what
3: they claimed was a theory that I think probably everyone has heard of, um which is the theory that um an asteroid impact crashed into the earth and this is what caused the extinction of the dinosaurs um and the way that they backed it up was they had done some analysis of this layer of rock that represented where the extinction event had happened um or rather the point in time when the extinction event had happened um And what they found was that this layer was really, really high in iridium, which is an element that um, isn't so common throughout the rest of the layers and on Earth in general. So they believed that all this iridium must have come from an asteroid that had crashed into the Earth, covered the Earth in this, this element, and then also caused the dinosaurs to go extinct
0: and 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 i think it wasn't uh at least some geologists weren't particularly happy with this this theory weren't they? they 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 weren't happy with uh with a physicist sort of uh sticking his nose in um to 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 their work but is this extinction theory accepted today were, were alvarez and colleagues right
3: so um it's still up for debate but it's it's much less hotly debated than it was at the time Um, Most experts do think that an asteroid impact was the main cause now. Although there is evidence that a lot of volcanic activity was happening around the same time, which could have led to climate change and made the earth inhospitable to dinosaurs as well. There are other theories and there's no consensus, 100%. But in 2010, a panel of 41 scientists from around the world reviewed the data and they concluded that the Alvarez hypothesis um, is the most likely
0: explanation. And, and I think um, a, a big piece of evidence came about 10 years after they published their paper when a, a, a giant crater was discovered uh, under the Gulf of Mexico.
3: Yeah, that's right. Of course, if you had a theory that an asteroid had crashed into the Earth and it was such a devastating event that it could have caused this mass extinction, then it must have left a pretty big crater. Uh, like you say they did um subsequently um about 10 years after Alvarez's hypothesis was proposed um they did find the remains of an impact crater underneath the gulf of
0: mexico yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Laura. And, um, and, and work on, actually on that crater continues today. We, we had a, a news story recently on Physics World about researchers who sort of went down it, to that crater in the Gulf of Mexico and took samples. And they came to the conclusion that the crater was formed at roughly the same time as the iridium was deposited. I suppose, uh-huh. perhaps further proof that um, Alvarez and colleagues were right. So, Laura, you mentioned that um, that Alvarez was interested in the Kennedy assassination, but he also um, had an interest in Egyptian pyramids and using particles to study Egyptian pyramids. What, what was that all about?
3: Yeah, that's right. So he definitely had um, really wide-ranging interests. Um, so in 1965, he had the idea that you could search the Egyptian pyramids using a technique called muon tomography. And it was actually related to his previous work because he had worked before on cosmic rays. One component of cosmic rays is a particle called a muon, these muons that are raining down all the time. Basically, you can put a particle detector underneath um, a structure and it can detect the muons and their energies. And this can tell you about the structure that the muons are traveling through, because um, if they have to travel through a lot more material, then they'll lose a lot of energy. Whereas if they're just traveling through a hollow chamber, then they won't lose as much energy. Alvarez decided that he wanted to investigate one of the pyramids and look for hidden chambers using this technique. And that was actually still underway, that, that project. Uh, in 1968 when he won the Nobel prize
0: and uh, and and researchers are, are are have revived that idea i think a, a few years ago in physics world we had an article about a a french um egyptian collaboration uh using um i suppose much more advanced muon detectors to search um for for voids in a pyramid and i think um definitely when we reported on it the researchers had suspected that they had found a void in the pyramid. I don't know. I don't know what the final conclusion on that was. But it is interesting that uh, you know some of these great ideas that um, that he came up with, um, you know, fifty or so years ago. Um, uh, pe- people are still following them up.
3: Yes, definitely. I think that was the pyramid of the sun in Mexico that they were looking at using the same technique. So it it continues to be a really useful tool for archaeologists and something that physicists continue to help with in archaeology as
0: well yeah that's right yeah what what what, what an amazing life um luis uh, alvarez and um yeah thanks thanks for coming on the podcast and and talking about him thank you Coming up on Physics World, we'll be publishing Life Beyond the Nobel articles about other laureates, so stay tuned. And I've also updated our Nobel infographics, one that looks at the role that migration has played in the lives of Nobel laureates, and another that looks at which physics disciplines have attracted the most prizes over the years. And one thing that I can say about disciplines is that astronomy astrophysics and cosmology is hot at the moment, accounting for 40% of the prizes awarded in the past decade. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Peter Baker, Jim Al-Khalili, and Laura Hiscott for joining me today. And a special thanks as ever, to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. This month, host Andrew Glester hears from scientists and software engineers at the vanguard of developing free and open-source software for physics research. Physics World